Hello, and welcome to episode 203 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and how are you, Ian? It has been days since I saw you last. It has been days. It has been days and days and days. It's been just a few days, in fact, because we enjoyed each other's company and the company of Seth Miller as well. You find people made your way to Chicago, and we enjoyed... Meals upon meals upon meals and airplanes upon airplanes upon airplanes. And it was uh, a good time was had by all, I think. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. I love doing these day trips out to Chicago on otherwise lazy Saturdays where I have nothing to do and the weather is nice and the flights are not just on time, but early and everything works the way it's supposed to, except for some unimportant things. You were so early, you got put in the penalty box. We did. We I think we touched down like 34. Five minutes early, and we were only in the penalty box for a few minutes because, again, it's Saturday morning, so the flight occupying our gate pushed back exactly on time. Thank you, Delta. And we still blocked into the gate like 25 minutes early or something like that, which was great. On the way back, our flight took off four minutes after scheduled departure time from O'Hare, which is like unheard of. When does that happen? That never happens. Saturday night. Saturday night. It's the only time. It was great. I flew Delta on a pair of A220-100s, got upgraded to first class even due to my relatively still pretty low status with the airline. But again, flying on a Saturday, it's great. There's, there were like 80 empty seats on each flight. Everything was great on the way back. on our. We took a really northerly approach between Chicago and New York. We actually flew over Toronto, which is a little odd for that route. But we had an approach to runway, what was it? Runway four at LaGuardia. And it was the best approach I've ever had into LaGuardia view-wise since we cut right over midtown Manhattan, went down the Hudson River and made a U-turn around the battery of lower Manhattan. And it was just an absolutely spectacular view at night. And I wish every flight were that easy and scenic. That would be ideal. But alas, what would we have to talk about if every flight was that easy? Yeah, that story is real short. I mean, it it, it was nice going to O'Hare, seeing some airplanes I, I don't typically get to see. You've got some interesting airlines out there. Yeah, like SkyWest. Oh, oh yeah. It wasn't really what I meant. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of E-145s there. That's interesting. We don't get to see those here in New York, I think, at all. Not even in Newark anymore. If there are, there are very few of them. But overall, very fun day. Got to go to Delta's new terminals in both LaGuardia and O'Hare. So uh, cross two off my list there. So a win all around. A win all around. And I got some hot dogs and Italian beef sandwiches and everything was great. There you go. Outside of that day trip, it was a very busy weekend for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately. So that was a nice diversion before diving right back into all sorts of things that have been happening over the week that we're going to talk about now. Yeah. Some of these, they're big ones. Yeah. So first up, let's just get the unidentified floating object story out of the way. We're up to, I think, four shootdowns now in total between the Chinese balloon that was shot down off the East Coast last week now, and then the three more that were not necessarily balloons, but 
things, possibly balloons, likely balloons, but not necessarily spy balloons, probably not spy balloons. We don't know. We're still trying to find them after we shot them down. Anyway, the other ones were shot down because they were flying at altitudes where commercial flights could, in fact, impact them. The Chinese balloons were shot down because they wanted to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon. These were downed because they were flying at altitudes, I I think ranging between 20 and 40,000 feet, where a commercial aircraft could ostensibly impact it, and that would be bad. So they downed them. There's an errant Sidewinder missile somewhere in or around Lake Huron. So if anybody finds one- It's still going today. It never came down. Some say. So if you find that, don't don't touch it. Call local authorities. But hopefully this is all, you know, done, but we'll see. The explanation that we've got from NORAD about why all of a sudden we're seeing a bunch more floating objects is both helpful in its simplicity, but also kind of makes you go, huh. Because they said that these things aren't necessarily new. It's just that they turned up the juice on the radars so that they could see more stuff. And so now they're seeing more stuff. So was there always stuff there before that they weren't seeing? And I don't know if that's supposed to make me feel better because they weren't wasting their time because it seems like these weren't necessarily or weren't at all threats to anybody other than perhaps floating through commercial airspace. But- does that make me feel better? I don't know. I feel like this has probably been going on for a long, long time, and now it made the the public view, and, and they can't be ignored at this point until the public forgets about it uh, in the next news cycle, and then life continues. I, I can't imagine that the military is going to keep shooting these down anytime there is something unexplained in the air, because these could vary from legitimate weather balloons to ridiculous gender reveal things floating in the sky that probably shouldn't be there. I think we've probably heard the last of this for a while, but that opinion might turn out to be completely wrong. One can only hope. I just keep thinking of the scene from Blazing Saddles when he goes, gentlemen, we must protect our phony baloney jobs with all of these balloon things like the just one after another. I don't know. Those missiles are expensive. What did I read? They were like four hundred thousand thousand dollars a piece. So if you find the one that missed the target, which happens, again, these are very small targets. If you happen to find it, don't try to sell it because (laughs) they probably won't buy it back. (laughs) One Sidewinder on eBay. Great. Okay. Let's not talk about that for the rest of time if we can manage it. Now, here's where the weekend really got busy, unfortunately. So I got a message from our good friend, John Ostrow, who was just on the program. And he said, do you have some data on a particular flight? And he included language that led me to believe that I was not going to like what I saw when I pulled the data for him. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So, How quickly so- did you go from pulling up the data to going, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no. So I found the flight and as soon as I opened the speed altitude graph, it was abundantly clear that something went very wrong. So we're talking about United Airlines flight 1722 that departed from Maui last December. So this was the 18th of December. 
And the flight was flying from Maui to San Francisco. And about a minute and 11 seconds after takeoff, the aircraft went from leveling off after departure to a steep dive and dove down for a short period of time, but it dove pretty far to about 800 feet above the sea. So the lowest recorded point in the ADSB data that we have is 775 feet. So the aircraft recovered and they continued their climb and flew on to San Francisco, landed without incident. They filed the appropriate internal something bad happened reports. The airline began an investigation that is currently ongoing. The FAA began an investigation. The airline stated that the pilots involved have received additional training. And then two days after the publication of John's article, which went up on Sunday, so yesterday, Tuesday, the 14th of February, the NTSB announced that it is in fact investigating this incident. United had previously said that the NTSB notification was unnecessary because no one was hurt and the aircraft was not damaged. But the NTSB says, no, we're going to take a look at it. And so they're currently investigating. John's done some additional reporting and his reporting now points to how the pilots retracted the flaps and their communication while that was occurring. I'll read from John's latest report. The inquiries into the incident currently center on how and when the 777's flaps were retracted and the interaction of the two crew members during the climb out leading to the upset. And that's according to people briefed on the matter and John's reporting in the air current, which we'll link to because their aviation safety reporting is available without a paywall. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is another incident where the recorders on board the aircraft, both the data recorder and the voice recorder, will be of no help because they only record, was it, two hours of data and the flight itself was uh, probably triple that duration. So it's gone. There's not going to be much here for the NTSB to rely on, especially since crew communication was almost certainly going to be the, the most important part of what they need to look into here. So not great. Really, really, really need to up those recorder standards, but it's not even certain in this case that even though that the crew did file the, the proper procedures with United internally and that FAA was notified, it's not clear that the recorders were ever were pulled or would have been pulled because they did not notify the NTSB. Regardless, even if they wanted to, that date is gone long before they landed. And it's yet another case that solidifies the, the push to increase the, the recorder time on board these aircraft. It's just the two-hour limitation repeatedly coming up recently as being woefully inadequate. To be clear, the two-hour recording limitation is the loop on the cockpit voice recorder. So the the entirety of the flight would have been available on the flight data recorder. So the, yes, the control column inputs and, and things like that. So that would have been available. But as Jason mentioned, it, it's unclear whether or not the, the flight data recorder was pulled when the flight arrived in San Francisco, if they pulled the quick access recorder, if they pulled the full flight data recorder, or if they just did nothing and filed the report. But as Jason mentioned, regardless of whether or not they would have pulled or could have pulled any of those things, the cockpit voice recorder gone. The NTSB has been calling for increased 
cockpit voice recording lengths for a long period of time. We talked about this. I mean, we mentioned it when we talked about the, the Qatar incident a few weeks ago, when we talked about it with Sean Payne, the investigator in the NTSB's recorder lab, about how the NTSB has has consistently lost out on valuable information because they don't have access to what was being said or the sounds that the aircraft is making on the flight deck during an incident or or before and after an incident. So I think at this point, it's long past time. It's not like the technology is unavailable here. This is purely a restriction that does it is fabricated. It doesn't need to exist. This is a code change on the existing hardware to increase the the looped recording time from two hours to what what is the proposed time? Twenty eight hours or something like that. I believe it's twenty five. Yeah. Twenty five hours. Something much much more adequate that should cover. Ideally, it would be able to cover any outbound and return flight of let's say the longest flights in the world, and I guess twenty five is probably going to cover ninety five percent of those. But this is got to change. We are well beyond any technical limitation for virtually any aircraft operating the world. I'm sure this is nothing more than a a single line of code in these recorders that needs to be changed. You you change a two, you don't even have to delete the two. You can just add a five next to the two and it's fine. (laughs) I don't actually know. What, I'm not sure if that's involved quite in here, how it works. But it, whatever it is, whether they need upgraded firmware on the existing hardware or you, I doubt they would need actual new hardware or if they need to just put in another memory module in existing hardware. Either way, there is no rational, reasonable argument against increasing the recording time at this point. Anyone who argues against increasing over two hours, it is disingenuous and they have another agenda or they're just outright lying. It has got to change at this point. I would love to hear the argument against it. If you've got one, emails at podcast.fr24.com and we'll talk about it on the show. Anyone with this stance is going to be reaching out. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you're against it, please let us know why and we'll talk about it on the show. So on a different Hawaiian island, about a month later, a much less dire incident occurred. The NTSB announced that they're investigating a runway incursion involving a United 777 and Kamaka Air Cessna 208. Did it happen to be the same United 777? Not to put you on the spot, but- No, it's, oh. a, it's a different- okay. It's No, it's, it's So we can't just trouble. identify a troublemaker. <laughs> No, it's not. It's a different aircraft. The triple seven involved in the runway incursion is actually line number two, the second one of the very old triple sevens, the the second triple seven ever built. So what happened was is United flight from Denver landed runway four right in Honolulu. The Kamaka Air flight was landing runway four left. The United flight crossed runway four left as the Cessna was completing its landing roll. Looking at the data, it's one of those, yes, this was a runway incursion, but no, there was never really a danger of the two aircraft ever coming into contact. This was certainly a case of figuring out what went wrong and as with all NTSB safety investigations, making sure it doesn't happen again and certainly something that we don't want to see. But the Cessna was much well into its deceleration process to make its turnoff onto a, a much earlier taxiway, and the 777 was moving across the runway. So should it have happened? Absolutely not. 
was this along the lines of JFK, which we'll talk about in in a few minutes? Not necessarily, no. Actually, let's talk about the JFK thing now, and then we'll work our way up to what the FAA announced today. All right. Where where do we even begin with this? This is a – it's been an interesting week on this topic. Yeah. So I think over the weekend when we were trying to enjoy a it was a Friday news dump, actually. Okay. Okay. So what happened was we found out that the pilots of the American Airlines flight that crossed JFK's runway four left, sticking with four left now, but moving to JFK, they were refusing to speak with the NTSB investigators. Yeah. So the NTSB put out its, I I believe it's preliminary report on the matter, which is quite quite quick, which is great. And some other information was revealed as well. I think the two aircraft came within, what was it, 1,400 feet of each other? Did I get that? 1,400 feet, yes. 1,400 feet, which is not much. 1,400 feet separation on, on runway four left. But then it was quite concerning to read that the NTSB noted that the American pilots refused to talk to the NTSB on not just on the record, but have a recording or a stenographer take a transcript of the interview with the pilots. And they, they the NTSB just basically flat out said, and then actually followed up with a press release after the release of the preliminary report that the American pilots refused to talk. The NTSB offered multiple methods of recording the meeting rather than just, I guess, handwritten notes. The NTSB wanted to either do audio recording or have a stenographer take a transcript of the meeting, which apparently is not uncommon, the latter of the two. And the union of the American pilots just refused to participate in that for reasons I don't agree with, but I think you, Ian, have a a different opinion on the matter. Because we already had this conversation. Yeah, we, we've already had this conversation, but we can have it again because now we're recording it. My feeling was that these are safety investigations. These are not prosecutionatory. Prosecution. Events. They're they're yes. not adversarial events. It's not it's not the movie Sully where the NTSB is portrayed to be a prosecutor. I was say the same thing. That's not it. Anyone who saw that movie who is, you know, familiar with how an NTSB investigation works. Go read Robert Sumwalt's piece about it, who yeah, published exactly. a piece about that a couple months ago, who basically outright said, that movie right there, that's all bullshit. That didn't happen. Oh, we're going to have to bleep that. That'll, yeah, that'll have to happen. <laughs> but Jason's right, and Robert Sumwalt, who, who is the former chair of the NTSB, by the way. Thank you. That's what he, he did, in fact, say. And so- my argument here is that like if we're going to record the interviews because what the NTSB wanted to do was audio record it for trans- for a verbatim transcription and the pilots union said they would not participate in audio recorded interviews in any manner and i get where they're coming from because if there's an audio recording there's the possibility that that recording could be used in any manner in an adversarial you know kind of context or there's a chance that that recording could be leaked. Yes, there's a chance, but that does that ever happen? Let me defend the NTSB okay, on the back okay. half of that sentence. Okay. The NTSB, and when we talked with Sean Payne about this, you know, we talked about you know what happens to those the CVR recordings, and he's like, well, we we they get locked down. They never get out. 
we don't let them out. I don't recall of any case, forget the NTSB or uh, any national investigator, I, I don't know of any instance where the voice recorder has leaked. There are a few out there, and you can find them if you look for them. But as far as the NTSB is concerned, they have a stellar track record of making sure that those audio recordings don't get out. And so I don't see a problem with this, with the assurances that this is for the investigation, that the accurate statements of the pilots are recorded accurately and verbatim. I don't see a problem with that. But the NTSB said, well, okay, fine, we'll subpoena you. And they did. And now the pilots will be talking to investigators. Yes, but apparently not of their own volition. They're merely complying with the subpoena at this point. And it's important to remember that court stenographer, they are not somehow miraculously writing down every single word anyone to anyone's utters in a courtroom or in this case, a conference room or whatever. It is very much shorthand and they, they have to fill in a lot of the gaps. So if, if I were discussing something with the NTSB, I would prefer a recording. I, I would want everything I say to be transcribed verbatim rather than, I guess in this case, a, a version of a court reporter or a stenographer where it's more shorthand. If, if you read what a court stenographer has, has taken down in their machine, you're not going to understand what they're saying. There's a lot of interpretation needed in that. So I understand why they may not want a recorded interview. Maybe that's not typical or common, but it's a really bad look for the pilots and the pilots union in my eyes to outright refuse to speak to the NTSB merely because it's being recorded. It looks poorly on the union, the airline, the pilots. It doesn't look good for anyone in this industry, especially with the very predictable headlines that went out of American Airlines pilots refuse to talk to investigators. Uh, doesn't look good for anyone. I understand that the pilots are probably just doing what their union representation was telling them to do, but I just don't agree with it. I don't really have anything to add on, no, on that No, I'm sure we'll get hate mail for that opinion, but that is my opinion. If you've got an opinion, our email box is podcast at fr24.com and always is open. And we do read everything and I make Jason transcribe every email we get verbatim. So we said all of that to work up to what happened today. And that is the FAA's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, has announced a safety summit and kind of a, a top-down review of the United States aviation safety scheme, how the FAA keeps air travel safe in the United States. He starts off by saying, we are experiencing the safest period in aviation history. And by the measure of accidents, serious incidents, and fatalities, that's true, he then says, but we cannot take this for granted. I agree. Recent events remind us that we must not become complacent. Also agree. And now is this, this is an interesting phrase. Now is the time, and I'm quoting again, now is the time to stare into the data and ask hard questions. Hmm. I'm not sure what that means, but I like it. The subtext of that paragraph is, hey, everyone, what the hell is going on? We need to probably meet and figure out why we keep having all these near misses or runway incursions or planes almost landing on top of each other. Now is the time to stop that from becoming an actual catastrophe. They're going to hold this safety summit in March. 
to examine, I'm quoting here, what actions the aviation community needs to take to maintain our safety record. But at the very end of this, I find it interesting that the memo here closes out by saying, and I quote, we know that our aviation system is changing dramatically. Now is the time to act. I would love for him to expand on what he means by changing dramatically. What is changing dramatically? And I know there's a lot going on post-COVID, a lot of progression in the pilot intake process from first officers being promoted to captain rather quickly because there just isn't a lot of first officer to to pull from these days. But I would love for him to open in March on the first day of the summit to explain exactly what is changing dramatically. Well, I mean, I think a few things. One, you have to deal with the dramatic increase in rocketry. And he mentions that, you know, as far as dealing with the national airspace system and rocket launches. But also, I think that the technology of flight is changing, I mean, rather quickly in terms of aviation development, eVTOLs, electric flight, hydrogen power, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's what he means. But again, I would like to hear it from acting administrator. One more thing we forgot to mention back when we were talking about the American runway incursion at JFK, speaking of technology, the NTSB preliminary report did mention that ASDE-X, which is basically the ground aircraft monitoring system that will notify air traffic control if there is a runway incursion of some sort that was functional, that did notify ATC that a runway incursion was I guess not imminent, but occurring. And that is what triggered the air traffic controller to tell Delta to abort their takeoff, basically. So, hey, that's one more piece of technology that is changing dramatically for the better in that case. (laughs) We'll take it. Okay. So, that's a lot going on in the US. Let's leave the US and head to Nepal. Because today, the preliminary report on the crash of the Yeti Airlines ATR that crashed last month, that report came out this week, was released on on Monday. So over the past few weeks, we've seen a bit trickle out about the power management by the pilots and the fact that the propellers were put into a feather. Now we have a bit more information about what had happened. I do want to back up and talk about who was flying the aircraft. This is from the preliminary report, and I'm quoting now. The accident occurred during a visual approach for runway 12 at VNPR, which is the ICAO code for Pokhara Airport. This was the third flight by the crew members on that day. The flight was operated by two captains. One captain was in the process of obtaining aerodrome familiarization for operating into Pokhara, and the other captain was the instructor pilot. The captain being familiarized, who was occupying the left-hand seat, was the pilot flying, and the instructor pilot occupying the right-hand seat was the pilot monitoring. Okay, nothing out of the ordinary there. Continue. So then we move to kind of the final phase of flight, and this is section 1.14 of the preliminary report. The pilot flying disengaged the autopilot system at an altitude of 721 feet above ground level. The pilot flying then called for flaps 30 at 1056.32, and the pilot monitoring replied, flaps 30 and descending. Mm-mm. <laughs> As Jason's vocalizations portend, that's not what happened. Quote, the flight data recorder did not record any flap surface movement at that time. 
Instead, the propeller rotation speed of both engines decreased simultaneously to less than 25%, and the torque started decreasing to zero, which is consistent with both propellers going into the feathered condition. On the cockpit voice recorder, area microphone recording, a single master caution chime was recorded at 10.56.36. The flight crew then carried out the before landing checklist before starting the left turn onto the base leg. During that time, the power lever angle increased from 41% to 44%. At the point, the propeller rotation speed and the torque of both engines were zero. And the propellers are in feather, they are not producing thrust. Yeah, not great. So basically what happened here, what we believe, or the not we, what the investigators believe happened is that the pilot monitoring accidentally feathered the props rather than moving the flaps from 15 to 30 and confirmed that they were moving to 30 while that was actually not ever going to be the case. He had actually accidentally feathered the props. And taking a look at the, I guess, the throttle quadrant or the controls for the ATR-72, it's not the greatest design. And I know people are going to say, well, these two levers, they have a different feel, they have a different travel when you move them. But looking at it, I'm sure the human factors conditions here will bear a lot of information because the auto condition for the props is at almost the same position that flaps 15 is, which is the levers are directly next to each other. The flaps are on the right. The condition controls for the propellers are just to the left. Moving down the propeller controls, there are actually two. I'm sure they're probably linked, but I don't know that. But moving them down to the feathered condition, which basically eliminates the chance of them producing any power, is almost exactly in the same position of the flaps lever in the 30 position. So I understand how this mistake could possibly be made. It it is just not great design here, though this specific instance is probably never led to a crash in the past, the similarities between the condition of the propellers being an auto and feather and the flaps from 15 to 30, they are just so eerily similar in their placement. I I could understand how this mistake could be made, but not quite how it could not be caught since this pilot mentioned that they are 30 and descending when they were not descending. And apparently there was a master caution chime in the aircraft that seemingly may have been ignored since they just continue on with their checklist. We'll have to get these answers, of course, in the final investigation report. But the preliminary report here is not great. Yeah. Well, Jason was kind of walking everybody through the throttle quadrant and the flaps levers. I found a photo of the ATR-72 flight deck in flight where the prop auto and the flaps levers are next to each other on the central column. So I'll put a link to that photo in the show notes so you can see what we're talking about and see how close kind of all of those levers are, including the power, flaps, and propeller feathering controls. Yeah. And there are some human design factors here in these controls where the flaps knob basically is actually physically shaped like the flaps on an aircraft. So you're supposed to be able to feel the knob that you're holding here as opposed to the condition levers, which are distinctly different. And also there are two of them, which is different. But yeah, the placement of those, especially in the auto versus 15 flaps configuration, they are very close. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a break. 
And when we come back, we're going to talk about a blockbuster letter of intent. Oh, okay. I see where you're going. (laughs) We'll be right back with more AvTalk. Welcome back. It is now finally time to talk about Air India's massive aircraft order that has been teased and exclusivated and scooped. And everyone has said, it's coming, it's coming. It's the biggest order in the history of airplane orders. But you know what? It's not an order. (laughs) It is an intent to one day order and finalize these aircraft orders. Orders. So the best part about this is they were announced initially by the Prime Minister of India and the President of France, where Airbus is based, and then by the Prime Minister of India and the President of the United States, where Boeing is based. And then hours later, the actual announcements came out from Airbus and Boeing, and they were like, yeah, when finalized, Mm, these orders mm -hmm. will represent actual money. Yeah, it's... Interesting. So I think Boeing said Air India today announced the carrier has selected Boeing's family to expand, blah, blah, blah. The agreement between Boeing and Air India, the order will post to Boeing's order and deliveries website when final, as opposed to Airbus, which said, what exactly did they say? Has they announced, announced its, its commitment, commitment to order 250 aircraft. So none of this Israel, I'm sure it will be finalized in some form or another, probably exactly as we know it today, which by the way, is 140A320neo, 70A321neo, 34A351006A350900, 19737Max with options for 50 more, 2787s with options for 20 more, and 10777X just to round off the now impending fleet complexity of the new Air India. Excellent. Yes, that is, uh, I think I got all that right. But that With is- deliveries to commence like in late 2023. Very soon. So yeah. that is a lot of fleet complexity between their existing fleet of 777-200LRs, 777-300ERs, the 320 family. And now they're adding on top of that, the 320neo, the 321neo, A350, 7.3 Max, the 787, the 777X kind of reminds me of Lufthansa just taking whatever because they can fix whatever with Lufthansa Technic, except Air India doesn't have that capability. But this is clearly, as you said, a blockbuster order to be, but is not currently an actual order. Yeah. I mean, I don't expect the order to not finalize. In some form or another, it will finalize. Right, right. It's going to happen. You know, they've chosen engines. They've, you know, the real winner in all of this is GE. Yes, they. GE did put out a press release as well, simultaneously with Airbus and Boeing, I believe, exclaiming that they have been selected. So yeah, you might be right that GE is the real winner here. The real winner is the Indian public, the Indian passengers of Air India get some new aircraft that aren't crap, which is good. So the new ownership of Air India really seems to be, dare I say, promising. But this is kind of the same path that Alitalia slash ITA has taken, where they are no longer a public entity, they're private in some form or another, and they make this blockbuster order for whatever aircraft they can scrounge up. A lot of these aircraft, I reckon, are going to be not taken up aircraft. I know some of them are. 
coming from S7 or Aeroflot, specifically for the A350s. A lot of these will also be new yeah. build. But the similarities between what's happened with Alitalia and what happened with the old Air India, it's very similar. Yeah, and I think the same caution is warranted in that if the government stays out of the way, it's very likely that these airlines do well. Yes, but we have the added complexity here of Air India merging with Vistara, which the past incarnation of Alitalia was a little less complex in that nature. And this is it is a merger at the same time as a, a rebirth of an airline compounded with a complete fleet renewal and expansion in yeah, there's a, market a, there's a lot that is going on. rapidly expanding where Italy is not. So hey, this is quite something to watch. Yeah, there is a lot going on and it's going to be a very interesting rest of the decade to see how India's aviation market matures. I wish yeah, them luck because they're, sure. they're going to need it. <laughs> Speaking of in need of a little luck, Lufthansa's had a rough week. Lufthansa Group. Lufthansa, yes, Lufthansa Group has had a rough week and Lufthansa itself mostly is going to have an even rougher back half of the week. So today, Wednesday, the Lufthansa Group suffered an IT outage and that led to cancellations and delays across the group of airlines. So not just Lufthansa, but Swiss, Austrian, Brussels, Air Dolomiti. Who am I missing? I think you got them all. Okay. All but right. to be fair, it was not just a traditional airline whoopsie IT outage. It was, I think, a fiber line cut somewhere in Deutsche Telekom's network where even though the cable was buried five meters deep, some guy in a backhoe still managed to break it. So it's not a traditional IT and like, oh no, Sabre's down. We can't do our weight and balance. It was They cut a fiber line and everything broke for the entire airline group, which raises the question of why why we're still in a place in any industry, forget about the airline industry, but any industry where one fiber cut or several fiber cuts in the same location can ground an entire airline group. Like, How does that happen? How do they not have any redundancy or, or multiple paths for their IT infrastructure to go out over. It's just- It was actually just the parallel port cable that runs to the dot matrix printer that runs the entire- I was going to say the dot matrix printer too. You read my mind. Those things are crucial (laughs) to keeping this industry afloat. Without that, nothing works. Oh, industries keeping industries afloat. Yes, but Lufthansa's got more bad news in the future as there will be a a strike at both the Frankfurt and Munich hubs, which I think takes them entirely offline. And what's it, tomorrow or Friday? Friday. 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 So, so on the day you hear li- this- As you're listening to this podcast, Lufthansa folks are not having a good day. Yeah. We're only in February and we've already seen a number of either air traffic control or airport employee strikes that typically are reserved for the peak summer season. So this doesn't bode well for 2023. Or we're getting it out of the way early. No, that's not- I mean, you're, you're no. probably right, but I'm choosing to think- Optimistically. Okay. Well, on the same note, Amsterdam, Schiphol, which last year set records yeah. for just horrible operation and horrible <laughs> everything. Records for how bad things are. Records for bad. 2023 is not looking too much better so far as they announced that come the first week of April, they are introducing an extra 5% safety margin, reducing the capacity by 5,000 travelers a day. And this is on top of the already reduced, basically new normal for Amsterdam. So 
not great that we're already starting the year off by having to reduce the overall throughput. It's just, when do we turn it around? When are these European airports going to start paying employees better and getting people to actually staff checkpoints or whatever so you don't have a line of people stretched back, I don't know, hundreds of meters down a roadway to get through security? Something's got to give. And apparently 2023 will not be the year where something gives. I feel like it's the thing from The Simpsons where Principal Skinner's like got it almost figured out. And then he's like, no, it is they who are wrong. It's the children who are wrong. It's the security screeners who are wrong. No, it's thankfully it only seems to be constrained or confined to Amsterdam so far at this point, but kind of feels like the dominoes are going to start falling again come summer travel high season starting. Yeah, I'm not excited, but I'm choosing to remain optimistic at this point because it's only February. And so until I'm given additional reasons to worry, I'm hoping that they're just getting ahead of things. Let's see, what else do we have to talk about this week? Not that it's been a busy week or anything. More 737 MAX operators are returning to action in China. We've got the third operator, I believe, after China Southern and Hainan. We've got Fuzhou Airlines is back in action, or at least flying again, and will be back in action soon. Beta's eVTOL had its first test flight over New York City yesterday. The New so York City was area. A cool thing. They never entered New York City proper. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I, I had not heard of this aircraft before. Blade put out early saying, hey, we did this thing over Westchester Airport. I said, oh, cool. Ah, uh, Westchester. Okay. Yes, Westchester. Decidedly not gotcha. New York. Eventually, so so they, they flew from Albany down to Westchester. No, they flew all the way from Pittsburgh, all the way down to Schenectady, and then all the way down to huh. Westchester, which I thought was far more interesting than the little 21-minute hop they did over Westchester Airport. I thought flying the the entire length of New York State from the very northern airport to one of the most southern airports was actually more interesting than a 21-minute circle flight over the burbs north of this. There you go. Yeah. So I don't look forward to eVTOLs taking over the skies, but if Blade starts operating much quieter eVTOLs over awful turbine-powered helicopters, I'm all for it. All right. Jason, you brought this one up, and I guess we're only a month and a half into the year, but there's an airline that has already gone bust. Yes, Aeromar. Well, more airlines have already gone bust. Yes, Aeromar, a Mexican regional operator. I think they were based out of Mexico City. Not quite sure. They reorganized during COVID, but apparently it was not enough. And after some repossessions of aircraft and ceasing of flights out of Mexico City because of debt obligations, Aramar has called it quits and no longer operates, kind of like Flybe, I guess, the little similarity there. They were both ATR operators and they are bankrupt again in 2023 and gone. For real this time, in Flybe's case. (laughs) There you go. And then let's see, the last 747 went back to Payne Field today for another delivery ceremony. Yes. So that was fun. Yeah, there are lots of rumors still swirling about why this aircraft- What, what were the rumors? Like, the rumors I, I don't understand. Like, aircraft is broken. It's going back to Boeing for engine swaps oh, or electrical issues or this or that. If you were on Twitter today, it was just a circus of people with unsubstantiated claims that the aircraft is broken or needs engine swaps or whatever. You could have just stopped I after have. a circus of people with unsubstantiated but, uh, claims. I reached out to the proper people who could tell me that- Look no, at you. This air- I know I did my job, that the aircraft is going back to Everett for the handover ceremony to the 
operator that's on the other half of the airplane that isn't Atlas. I forget who it is, but a little odd. Definitely interesting to note that the aircraft traveled from Cincinnati back to Painfield at 43,000 feet, which is quite a high altitude for a freighter, though not exceptional. It does happen. There were others in the air at that altitude at the same time, but there were a lot of rumors swirling. As far as I have been told by the relevant people who know what they're talking about, nope, just another ceremony. Just another ceremony. So the aircraft is operated by Atlas Air on behalf of Apex Logistics, which is a subsidiary of CUNA and Nagel, which is a freight, massive freight moving operation. So the last two 747s ever produced, both operated by Atlas Air, are operated on behalf of CUNA and Nagel companies. So filling out all of that good fun stuff. And we end the show with helping out a friend. So Marson is a dedicated podcast listener, and he wrote in and said, I'm doing my master's degree in aviation, and I'm working on a thesis right now about pilot stress. And I thought, well, I'm not a pilot, but I'm very stressed out, so let's see if we can help him out. So he's asking if you are a pilot, a commercial pilot. So not if you're a military pilot listening, but if you're a commercial pilot listening or a civilian pilot, so commercial or private pilot listening, just not military, if you could fill out his survey. So I'll read his little note to give you a little bit more information about what it's about. I'm writing my thesis about the influence of stress on decision-making processes of civilian pilots, and I would like to ask for your help in completing my research. As we've repeatedly seen, cognitive functioning, situational awareness, and decision-making efficiency are a major factor in aviation safety and can be a decisive factor between an incident and a catastrophe. In order to study this issue, I'm conducting a short, it should take you 20 minutes or less to complete the entire survey, it is completely anonymous, survey of civilian pilots. He's determined to reach as many pilots as possible, so he reached out to us, and now we are reaching out to you, dear listener. So if you are a civilian pilot and you've got 20 minutes or less to spare, please consider helping Martin out as he completes his degree. So there you go. I really hope that next week we just get to talk about, I don't know, like maybe, I don't know, just less stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, less stuff. This was a 55-minute episode without even an interview of just mostly not great news. So we'll I, I see want what more, we can I do want next more good week. news. Yeah. I want more good news next week. Jason, make it happen. But until then, this has been episode 203 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.